Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. I grew up at a my dad is a church plant pastor, so I grew up at multiple different church plants, and so it kind of feels like coming back home to church plant context. I love it. Um, and yeah, it's just great. I have been praying for you all um, for a long time, so it's great to be with you in person. Um, so before I begin, I do have a small confession to make. I tend to lose things. So if you saw me earlier, I've been clutching my Bible with my notes because if I don't do that, I'll lose them. Um, I, you can ask my husband, but I lose my notes, I lose keys, phone, phone charger, all the things that help people get a hold of me. Um, so when they are found, when I find my phone, for instance, I try and develop strategies to keep it found. You know, like I'll put it in this particular pocket of my purse and it won't ever leave that pocket. Well, it gets lost again. Um, but there is this concept, the idea of when something is found, you want to stay found and stay with you. Um, so this is maybe why, ever since my husband Kevin and I have found out we're expecting our first child in June, I have a growing, what I hope is irrational fear, of misplacing my child. Um, which might sound silly, but this actually happened to one of my good friends from high school and college. She was the oldest of three kids, and they went up to Michigan every year at like a four-hour car trip. So about halfway through, they'd stop at a gas station. Um, and this one particular trip, she was like six or eight years old, I and mean, she was young, and they stopped. She was chatting with the, the gas station clerk, and she saw her parents' car just drive off. So she just sat there. Her parents got to their cabin two hours later, turned back and said, where's, where's Caitlin? The boy said, I don't know. We haven't seen her since the gas station. <laughs> so they jumped back in the car. Can you imagine the feeling of the parents with just the utter sheer loss and like, oh, what have we done? So yeah, I don't want to have that. But anyways, Caitlin was fine. She was still talking with the gas station clerk that whole time. She trusted that her parents would come and find her. Um, but when she was found, her parents did what any parents would do in that situation. They ran to her embraced her, and did not let her go, basically, for the whole rest of the trip. She actually remembers this of, like, I couldn't get out of their sight. Um, but Caitlin's reaction was actually pretty unique when you're lost. I think there's also, when somebody's lost, there is a desire to be found. Um, a great example of this is the story of my, my brother Sam was lost at camp. So I worked at Honey Rock Camp, which is a Christian camp up in northern Wisconsin for several summers. And one summer, I was a counselor up there, and my younger brother, my youngest brother, was a camper. And he had decided to do canoeing as his activity, and he, I don't think he had really ever canoed before. So him and his buddy were in a canoe, and they were, went out of the safe place, the lagoon, into the open water. And it was a really windy day, and so the wind blew them a mile down shore, and it blew them against the, like the shore against the rocks. And I don't know if you've ever canoed before, but when there's a strong wind and you're a sixth grade boy, with a small sixth grade boy, you have very little success in trying to get back out into the middle of the lake. Because the wind is so strong and it's, the waves are beating you and just beating you against the shore. So he was there for two hours with his friend. Um, 
two hours, which was during the free time, which was to come after the activity station. And I had no idea that he was even lost. But the very end of the open free time, my brother Sam, I'll never forget this. It was a very tender, sibling moment. He comes to me. He finds me. Tears are streaming down his face. And he goes, Sarah, they found me. They found me. He really did not know if he was going to be found. He thought they had drifted, you know, like miles and miles away down shore. He was actually still on camp property. He had no idea. And there was this desperate, like, will somebody find me? Will I be found? And when he was found, all he wanted to do was for me, which, like, you know, sixth grade boy with his older sister at camp, this is very unusual. All he wanted was for me to be with him, to be by my side. So when something is found and is put back in its right place, there's a sense of belonging that is right, a sense of being with We want to be with those things that are found. Um, In Philippians, Paul says in today's passage in verses 8 to 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In our passage, we see that Paul had realized one of the great gifts of God, that we are found, and we will always be found. We can always be found in Jesus. That is where our true identity lies. That's who we're truly meant to be with. Um, It's pretty amazing as Paul, I know that you've been studying Philippians, so Paul's writing this from a prison cell, most likely when he is in prison in Rome, some, I think it's 20 years after he had visited the Philippians for the first time, and he is actually... If he is in Rome and he's writing this, he is, unbeknownst to him at this point, awaiting his future martyrdom, awaiting his execution. And he writes this letter, and you can tell in his voice and tone, he actually means it. He actually believes it. And all the things that he listed before that um, were read earlier, his worldly standing, he really does count it as a loss. That does not matter to him. There's a sense of like just holy indifference about those things because what he has found and where he is found is so much greater. Um, about a year and a half ago, Kevin and I had the opportunity to actually visit Philippi. We were visiting some friends that were living in Greece at the time. And the thing that actually overwhelmingly struck me about going there was how tiny the prison was. Um, Paul was actually a prisoner when he was in Philippi the first time with the Philippians. And the prison cell, I mean, it is like, it's tiny. It's smaller than that, like, red square. Or it's about the size of one of those red squares over there. So you're talking like he is in solitary confinement, most likely, in a box, a stone box. And he can actually say that. Um, and he had actually discovered this gift. So this is something that I think is so powerful, but it's also hard to understand, hard to crystallize in our minds. But we actually have a gift today and that I think our gospel reading does this for us. It shows us that um, to be with God himself is the greatest gift to be found with him. So the context of this parable is that it is actually told in a set of three parables. It's the last parable, all that deal with something that is lost being found. So the first two, there's a shepherd who has 100 sheep. He loses one. He forsakes his 99 to go find the one, brings it back. A woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She in her house, and she tears her house apart to find the one coin. And both times they have a party when they find what they have lost. The audience that this is, um, that Jesus is speaking to is a crowd, and the crowd that has two groups of very distinct people in it. 
So the first in Luke 15, when we were told that they were tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now at this time, Israel, as you might know, was under occupation. And so the tax collectors were often seen as traitors. They were working for the Roman Empire, and they were getting the money from the Israelites and taking a gleaning of it for themselves. So there was reason why a lot of the Israelites looked at them with disgust. And also it says that sinners were there. We don't know exactly who these sinners were, but they were probably notorious sinners, prostitutes, people that were on the fringes of society. Um, and then we have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, it says, they saw all these people, and they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees were the conservative religious leaders, people of high morality. They did not like to be associated with the other half of the crowd that was there. Now, I like to judge the Pharisees, but before I judge them, I also realized I probably would have had the exact same reaction. We often can mark how we view a leader by who the followers are. And if you see that this leader is attracting this crowd of people that is people that are like, you don't want to be friends with, then it's easy to say, why, would, why is he attracting them? Why are they here? So this is the context for as Jesus tells this beautiful, profound parable. It's a story, a well-known and well-loved story of a father with two sons, both of whom... I think, are lost, and both of whom need to be found. The younger son is clearly lost. He's rebellious. He asks for his inheritance at the beginning of the story, which is, in that time, basically asking the father to be dead. He wants the money that will be owed him when the father dies, and he wants it now. And most likely, in order to do that, the father in this story would have had to sell off some of his property because a lot of the wealth was in the land that they owned in order to actually give his son the money. So his son basically as, uh, was wanting the things from the father, but not the actual relationship with the father. Um, and he takes the money, he lives a high life, and he squanders the money in a far distant country. And after the money is up, there's a famine, and he suddenly realizes that he's in need. I can imagine that when he had all the money and he was just living life, he was probably feeling pretty good about himself. But as soon as it's gone, he realizes he needs something, he needs food, so he starts working for a pig farmer, which is pretty low when you've come from a probably well-established family to begin with, and you're Jewish, and pigs are dirty animals and unclean. But then he reaches an all-time low when he starts being jealous of the pigs. I mean, that's pretty, pretty <laughs> bad. He's jealous of the pigs because they know that they have food coming. He doesn't know if he's going to have food coming. So when he's in this place of utter lostness, utter despair, the text says, he comes to himself. I love that phrasing. He comes to himself and realizes it would be better to be a servant in my father's house, better to be with my father even if I'm not his son, than to be where I am now. So he does something extremely courageous and that he realizes he, is in, he, realizes he needs his father. And he summons up the courage to go and ask for forgiveness and to be asked back in. So what happens when he comes back, when he is found? Probably not what he was expecting. As he's on the road, the father sees him a long way off, runs and embraces him. He puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger. These are signs that he's back in full stature with the family. He's back as a full member of the family. When he's found, there's not condemnation. He can't even actually finish his apology that he had rehearsed in the pig field because the father cuts him off and welcomes him back in. Now, um, I can imagine that the original audience, possibly, 
was most likely in a state of disbelief when they heard this first half of the parable. Group one of the tax collectors and sinners, state of disbelief of what? This is not how we have set up our system of right and wrong and judgment. How could he not be condemned? If I am found by the Father, will he actually love me? Group two of the Pharisees also were in state of disbelief. This is not fair. This isn't how it should be. Which leads us to the older son. So at the beginning, it seems like he has found the whole time. He's in the father's house the whole time. He's physically with the father. He never runs away. He works hard. When the, old, when the younger son comes back, he's in the fields working for the father. He never disobeys the father. So how is he lost? I think he is lost because he doesn't know what it is meant to be found. And he doesn't realize that the gift of the father is not in the things that he can give, but in the Father himself, in the relationship with the Father. He's lost behind his own cloak of self-righteousness and self-worth. He actually disrespects the Father by not going into the party. So when the, the party for the younger son, the, old, the Father has to come out and find him, tries to bring him in, and what does the younger say, son say? Or the, sorry, the older son, too many sons. He says... How many years have I served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends? But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fat and calf for him? You can, like, hear his sense of, in, of justice. It just seethes out of those words. You're, he thinks that the father is saying that the younger son, what he did, he literally prostituted the money. That was more valuable? You're rewarding that? Well, how can you be rewarding that? I have worked for you. Don't you see all that I've done? But what does the father say? Does he tenderly embrace the older son and say, I'm sorry I've been a horrible father and I've neglected you and not shown you everything or not giving you what you justly deserve? No. In fact, he rebukes the older son for this attitude. And he says... In verse 31, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. For the gift is the presence of the Father, the relationship with the Father. Again, not the things of the Father. I think the older son was also more interested in the things of the Father and not the Father himself, just like the younger son. And interestingly enough, we don't know what happens at the end of this parable, Jesus kind of leaves it open. We don't know what the older son does. Does he walk away from the father? Just it's still indignant at this injustice that's been done to him? Or does he go inside to the party? Does he allow himself to actually be found? Again, I think the original audience probably with this second half also was in a state of disbelief. With the tax collectors and sinners thinking, What? I thought the perfect ones were to be rewarded. Isn't that how this world works? Group two of the Pharisees, what? The older brother is the one who gets condemnation? What is going on? For we have to realize that, again, the gift of the Father is not in what we can give him. It's not in what he actually gives us, the things he gives us, but it's in himself. For the past two years, this is what the Lord has been teaching me. And this past year, he used this parable in particular in powerful ways to show me that he is my greatest gift. 
He is the greatest gift, and my greatest calling is to be found in him and to grow in intimacy with him. Um, as a pastor's kid, and now working for the church, I have a very strong inclination towards the elder brother mentality. Um, and I often can get swept up as kind of a constant spiritual struggle that I've lived in of getting swept up and doing everything for God rather than being with God. But this past year, this really came to fruition, um, my older brother mentality, when Kevin and I actually, we had been trying to have kids for two years before we got pregnant. And in that infertility struggle, I had a lot of questions. And I was coming to God with this desire, this thing that I wanted him to give me, that I realized was a gift from him and a good gift, but it wasn't happening. I was questioning why it wasn't happening. And last spring, a year ago, I went on this women's retreat um, that used this parable to say that God desires to give us good gifts. And this is not what these retreat speaker intended, but it led me to a spiral of thinking of, okay, if God desires to give us good gifts, and this is a good gift, why hasn't he given it to me? Why does God give some people, some people who don't even want the gift of children, the gift of children? Kevin and I would be much better parents than all them. Why have they received this gift and we haven't? So I was in a state of anxiety, fear, grief. And I really, I was desiring the Father, but I was also more strongly desiring the thing from the Father and thinking that if I got that thing, all those anxieties and fears, all that struggle would go away because that's what I needed. So when we got pregnant this fall, which was super, we were super excited, overwhelmed, but as you might have guessed, those anxieties, fears, grief, they didn't go away. So now I was like coming to the Lord of what is going on? Why am I still anxious? Um, and then we did, and I was not very fond of this parable at this moment, you know. Um, but at church, we did an exercise where we were imaginatively praying through the parable. And it was as if I was the older son, you know, standing there. And God spoke to me saying, you have always been with me. All I have is yours. And I realized in that moment that the gift, the greatest gift that he could ever give me was not the gift of a child as desperately as I wanted a child, as desperately as we do want and are so excited for it. The greatest gift that he's ever given me was himself. And I had this image, this picture of him being with me that whole time, the whole two years of longing, the whole two years of anxiety and him holding me. This just picture of me like of Jesus holding me as his child and he snuggled up on his breast. So I, it also, <clears throat> as I have continued on this journey and overcoming some of those anxieties and fears, I've realized that it's coming into the presence of the Father, that that's when those are gone. Because if I'm not in the presence of the Father, they come right back up. But when I am found in him, that's when he carries them for me and I can experience true joy and the fullness of life. I don't think we will ever find ultimate satisfaction in the things of this life, this world. What Paul said in Philippians, he called it the confidence in the flesh. We can never find full satisfaction and confidence in the flesh, no matter if you're the A-plus student and get everything that you want, 
or in material goods like the younger brother sought after, or in the praise or admiration of the father and others like the older brother sought after. Instead, we are called every day to be found in Jesus Christ, every day to be found in the Father's love. So this morning, what does it mean for you to be found in Christ? What is blocking you from being with God in the presence of Jesus? Is it confessing desire for simply wanting the things of God, but not a relationship with God? Or like the younger brother, is it a turning, coming back to your true self, confessing sin and walking towards the Father? Or like the older brother, are you hiding behind righteousness, being vocally present, but spiritually distant from the Lord? The Father is here. He's ready to receive all of you, all of us, with his wide, embracing arms. And we will be with God when we are found in him, not just now, not just for this life, but for all eternity through the work that Jesus did for us. So come. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.